All right, if you will, go ahead and open to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. Um, each week so far in Zephaniah, we've kind of seen this underlying common theme of sin, judgment, and hope. All have sinned, right? Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, because of one man's sin, all have sinned. So Adam's rebellion against God in the garden led to all people from that point on born of natural means um, to be sinners, um, which means that none of us escapes that except for Jesus because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit um, and born of the Virgin Mary. But every other human being ever in existence is born in sin. So there are none of us that can escape the truth that we're born sinners. And the result of that, the result of that sin and and the due penalty for that sin, um, according to Romans 6, is death, right? So every person is born into sin, and the result of that is death. So there's um, a pretty simple, like, point A and point B. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But, as we've seen in small part so far in Zephaniah, there's hope that's offered. And the hope is, is that if we repent of our sin, if we acknowledge that we are sinners, and if we realize that we need forgiveness of sin, and we repent of that sin, and we turn from that sin, and we turn to Jesus, and we trust Him as the only Savior of our souls, the only hope we have of salvation, then we receive a great hope. And from week one, I told you that the ultimate purpose of our journey through Zephaniah was to realize a satisfying salvation in Jesus alone, and today ushers in that good news. So the first couple weeks are really hard, right? And he starts with judgment, and it's pronouncement of judgment after pronouncement of judgment, and it's heavy, and it's weighty with just these little glimmers of hope. But today we get to the good news. We see a satisfying salvation. And the main idea that I want us to remember as we work through um, today's text, which is a pretty big one, is that sin leads to death, but in Jesus, God offers hope. Again, sin leads to death, but in Jesus, God offers hope. I want to pray for us really quick before we begin to dive in. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but I'm pretty confident we can do it. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of grace. We thank you for the gift of your word that teaches us of the gift of grace. And we thank you that we have these opportunities to gather together around your word, to sing it, to preach it, to read it, and to see your word on display. God, may we never take for granted these opportunities. And this morning, as we work through a pretty lengthy text, God, would you just make yourself known to us? Would you continuously remind us of the good news of Christmas, the good news of Advent? 
that at once there were people who longed for your coming. Now we have seen your coming. We know that you came. We know what you accomplished. And now we await your return. God, would you work through your word to transform our hearts so that our lives would be made more into the image of your son, Jesus. May we realize the true, satisfying salvation that we find in Christ alone. So God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. You would bless our time together this morning. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So sin leads to death, but in Jesus, God offers hope. And that begins with the reality that we must seek the Lord. We closed last week with this glimmer of hope in the midst of a very dark time. That with the pronouncement of judgment, that God does offer grace. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the glimmer of grace, the glimmer of hope that God offers in the midst of this heavy pronouncement of judgment is to seek the Lord. In other words, he is saying, turn to me, turn from your sin and seek me once again. See, the sin that they had been guilty of and that was warranting this great pronouncement of judgment is that they had begun to worship other things or other people and maybe even a combination of the two in addition to or in replacement of God alone. And, and when we first hear something like that, it makes us think, man, how could anyone worship anything or anyone other than God? But if we're honest, we do it every day. We fill our lives with these other things that serve as functional saviors. We don't rest in God alone. We don't trust in God alone. We, we worship other things. We worship other people. We exhaust ourselves for our spouses and our kids and our careers and our hobbies without giving much attention to God and His Word, without spending time studying the Word of God, without gathering together with God's people. And yet we say we worship God alone, but He gets very little of our lives and our attention. And so the question really is, is if we say that we love God and we say that we're serving God alone... What would happen if you lost everything? Would he be enough? If you lost your spouse, if you lost your children, if you lost your home, your job, everything that you had worked for, 
and pursued, would he be enough? Would we be able to, like Job, say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or would we curse God because he took away what we perceived were blessings? And the things we have are great blessings. But the greatest blessing is Christ alone. So if you lose all of those things, what would our hearts say our worship is? Would our worship be towards God? Or would it reveal that our worship was towards many other things or other people and God only played a small part? It is pretty evident that much of what is going on in our world and in Christian circles is worship of self rather than worship of God. We want services to be our way. We want church to be our way. Um, Yesterday I was talking with a friend. They're looking for a church to go to. And so we were Googling churches, and I pulled one up, and it was like, man, this looks pretty good. And then the very first thing I read was, a church for those who don't like church. And the more I read, it was just like, I just told him, like, don't go there. We want everything to be about us. We want our lives to be about us. We want our desires fulfilled. We want our dreams to come true. And so what begins to happen is we begin to worship ourselves and our things rather than the giver of life and the giver of things himself, and that's God. And so these folks have been guilty of saying they worship God, but also worshiping these false idols in addition to that. But that's not how this thing works. God is a jealous God. But the message of hope is, is that for those who repent, who, who turn from this false way of living, who, who repent of their sins and who trust in God alone, he says they are gathered together. They are gathered as a remnant, as the remaining good crop after the chaff has been swept away. We referenced how a lot of this imagery is to that of farming in that day and harvesting grapes or figs more than anything and how they would gather the good and then prune and do away with the bad. And you get that same picture here. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. So it's this last warning to seek God before the day passes away like Shaft, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. There's coming a day when the chaff will be swept away in judgment. And the only thing remaining is God and his people. Those who rejected God will be cast away from God and his graces into hell into an eternal separation from him, eternal damnation where there is no end in sight. 
But he's saying, gather together before the decree takes effect. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Do who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Remember, Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden. So that those who trust in God, we will be hidden from the anger of the Lord. See, on the day of the Lord, there will be two people. The proud who reject God, who, who continue to do things their way, who continue to live by their own rules, by their own standards, as if God were just some figment of the imagination. And in their pride thought there was no need of anyone or anything else. And there will be the humble who trust in the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, those who trust are to gather together. And they are seek, to seek Him together as a community of faith. Living life together. What a beautiful design that God would not only bring redemption and the possibility of redemption in Jesus, but he, that He would design redemption to exist together. That those who were redeemed, that those who are saved from sin would live and exist together as a community of faith. See, if you're living in isolation, you're in trouble. If, if the church is simply just a blip of your life that you go to when it's convenient, you're setting yourself up for great disaster. God has given His people each other. And He gathers us together so that we can seek Him together as we live together. But on the other hand, those who refuse to trust in the graciousness of God those who rebel against Him, who live in rebellion, which is exactly what it is. If we're not trusting God completely, it's rebelling against Him. There's, there's no middle ground. It's either all God or no God. There is no middle way. For those, there will be widespread judgment. So seek the Lord. See, is this final warning cry to the people, Zephaniah announces judgment to various regions. He doesn't just single out one person or one group. He goes to the entire area. And what this does is it makes us realize that there is no escaping God's righteous judgment. There is no group that can escape God's judgment. There is no Race, there is no nationality, there is no socioeconomic group, there is no one that can escape the righteous judgment of God without Christ. 
verse 4, he says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds or flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth, And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So this pronouncement of judgment is going to all of these regions, to all of these peoples. To all of those who are surrounding Judah and Jerusalem. And the thing is, is Judah was known for condemning others because of their idol worship. For not worshiping God alone, yet here they are just as guilty. And so he continues with his judgment in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. He's talking about Jerusalem and Judah. So their judgment that they typically cast is now extended to them too because they had turned from worshiping God alone. Chapter 3, verse 2, she listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. 
Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. See, this judgment extends to Judah and the surrounding regions, letting them know it's not you who will escape. It's not you who will escape. This judgment is coming for all that is turned from worshiping God alone. So I want to, because it was such a large portion that we just read, I want to point out a couple of truths that we can gather from this. First, God is more holy than you can ever imagine. Therefore, sin against Him is far worse too. He is much holier than we could ever think or imagine. He's far holier and greater than you could ever perceive. Which is why our sin against Him is also greater than we could ever think. J.I. Packer says, There are no small sins against a great God. Our tendency is to write off certain sins as not being that bad. God's loving, God's gracious, so He'll, he'll not punish me for this. this, this isn't, it really isn't that bad. He says, There are no small sins against a great God. Second, God's judgment, as harsh as it sounds, is completely warranted because of sin. Again, if God is as holy as He is, and sin is as wretched as it is, then He has every right as the righteous judge to judge sin. So when He makes the pronouncement that all of sin and the wages of sin is death, He has every right to execute that. He has every right to destroy all things. He has every right to do exactly what he is proclaiming through Zephaniah to all of these people. But thirdly, he offers grace to those who repent. To those who turn from their sin, who turn from their wicked ways and they turn back to God. He offers hope. And those are known as the remnant. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. In other words, he's going to take all of these evil things, he's going to make them new, and he's going to give them to the people of God. 
He's going to provide a remnant. He is going to offer grace to those who repent of their sin and turn back to Him. Fourthly, this remnant, this people who are left, who trust God, who turn from their sin and turn back to God, who become the people of God, this remnant must exist together in community because attacks will come, trials will come, persecutions will come, mockings will come. People will hate you because you pronounce and proclaim the name of God, which is why we desperately need one another. And I think it's pretty evident that these times, while they sound abstract to us, are coming pretty quickly. There is coming a day when you will not be able to proclaim the name of Jesus so freely. We desperately need one another in those times. We need... need each other. Scripture says we should be stirring one another up towards love and good works. You can't do that alone. There is no accountability when you're living in isolation from God's people. You can't love Christ and not love His church. And lastly, the thing that I want us to see is that without repentance, there is no escaping God's judgment. Without turning from sin, there is no way that you're going to escape the judgment of God. See, there is coming the day when every one of us will breathe our last and we will stand before this holy and this righteous and this majestic God. And without turning from sin, what in the world do you think you're going to offer to him to make judgment not come? I mean, Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousness, so the best you have to offer without Christ is as filthy rags. We don't come to him bringing gifts, hoping he will be appeased. We come to him offering one thing, and that's Jesus, which has already been given to us. And it's the blood of Christ that forgives sins. And the only way to escape the righteous judgment of God is to trust in Jesus, who has already appeased the righteous judgment of God. There is no holiness that you can attain. There is no amount of scripture you can memorize. There is no amount of giving you can give. There is no amount of serving you can serve that is going to make God remove his judgment from you. The only hope we have is in Jesus. And he says if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So the only hope we have is in Christ alone. So the judgment that's being pronounced to these people, to this group of folks, is that they had twisted their worship. They had made their worship what they wanted to make it. 
And God was no longer the center of it. He was no longer the center of their lives. He was just a small portion. And that's not good enough. It's got to be all or nothing. Because what happens when God is not the center of everything, we begin to morph our lives in exactly what we want them to be and expect God to be okay with that. He's not. We begin to have worship services that God would say through Amos, I hate your meetings. We would begin to live lives that actually are rebellious against God. They, they defame the name of God and they reject the work of the Holy Spirit. They are not God honoring if God is not completely the center of it. And so we have to ask ourselves these questions. What does my life look like? Is God truly the center of everything? Because the reality is, is that these truths are undeniable. God is holy. God is righteous. God is gracious. God is just. None of these things are made up. And so the question for us is how, as the people, do we respond to truth? How do we respond to truth? It's not how do we respond to theory. How are we responding to the truth of God's word? How do we respond to God himself? I would offer two ways. The first, you must be honest about your sin. The amount of depravity in your own life and your desperate need for Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. And you must repent. John Calvin says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. In other words, without knowledge of self and its brokenness and its depravity, we cannot realize the, the majesty of God, the graciousness of God. So we have to do a little bit of inventory of our lives. We have to see God for who He is, and we have to realize how bad our sin truly is. And we must cry out to Him and ask Him to forgive, because He is the only one that offers forgiveness. He's the only one that can forgive. Last night, we were watching reruns of 24. <laughs> If you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's this part where Jack Bauer is about to die. And this imam comes in and he tells Jack that there's still hope for him. And he holds his hands and he prays. And his prayer was uh, basically, may we be able to forgive ourselves. And then there's like this calm peace that comes over Jack Bauer. Um, that's a lie. Like all of the stuff you hear today that we should love ourselves and forgive ourselves and girls, we should wash our face. Like that's not the Bible. The only hope we have for life and peace is Christ. And we must go to the word of God and we must search the word of God so that we can with that search our own hearts. We must 
acknowledge our sin and we must trust Christ and we must repent of our sins against a holy God. And second, we must gather together with God's remnant, with God's people, with God's church as a community of faith and we must live for one another as we live for Christ. We are, we are such a selfish society, a selfish people. My old pastor used to say, we kind of have this mentality that we get all we can, we can't all we get, we sit on the lid and let the world go to hell. And we say that sounds terrible and harsh, but it's pretty true how most of society lives and exists. And we get irate when things are not our way and we get bent out of shape when we don't get what we want. But we are called to seek the Lord because judgment is coming. And at the end of, end of, at the, end of the day, that's the truth. That's the reality. That judgment is coming for all sinners. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Those who do not trust in Christ, judgment is coming. Without repentance, judgment is coming. You might be thinking, well, I thought you said we were getting to good news. We are. A thrill of hope. See, verse 8 is a call of waiting, primarily for those who are awaiting judgment. Therefore, wait, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of jealousy all of the earth shall be consumed. However, what that does is it also paves the way for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who have trusted in God. Because if he's gathering together those who reject him, that means he's also gathering together those who trust. And while there's a waiting period for those who are awaiting judgment, there's also a waiting period for those who are waiting for restoration. There is a thrill of hope for the people of God. See, because the good news is this, that God will build a family who will pursue his son Jesus and his righteousness together. He says in verse 9, for at that time, right? So the moment that God ex executes his judgment, which is also the same time that he saves his remnant. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. So he's speaking to those who have trusted him, who repented, who have turned back to him. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. They will serve him together. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring 
my offering. So you begin to see this picture of God saving his people, his, his gathering of his people, and that they will pursue him together in one accord. They will pursue righteousness as one. So you're seeing here the salvation of God's people. And so when the judgment comes for the rebels, for the rebellious ones, restoration also comes to the remnant. People will be changed. He goes on in verse 11, And on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. In other words, those who rejected me, who were not poor in spirit, who thought there was no need of me, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. All will be made new. And he says, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And hear this, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He does what? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or a valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you're at, grace is greater. There's hope. You've heard it. I've heard it. Maybe you've even been guilty of saying, but God cannot forgive me for this. I want to let you know that your God then is not big enough. Our God is big enough. Our God is greater. There is no sin that cannot be redeemed by our gracious God. The blood of Christ is enough. And that is good news. It's good news that we have no hope in ourselves. It's good news that God would see fit to provide a way of redemption for his people. That God would promise to send a Messiah, a Savior who would right wrongs, who would defeat 
sin, who would destroy death, who would silence Satan, who would rip the veil of the curtain in two, who would establish hope, who would execute righteous judgment, who would bring a satisfying salvation to his people. That is good news. Our hope, yours and mine, is in Christ alone. So don't be guilty of living your life as if Christ is only a part. He must be all, or He is none. What does your life look like? What do your routines say? What does your bank account reveal? What does your time spent show? There is hope, but only in Jesus. See, this is the story of Advent. That this journey, it's ultimately a story of hope. A story of light shining in the midst of darkness. God made a promise in Genesis 3 that He would right wrongs, that He would destroy sin and death forever. And Jesus is the reality of God's promise. Jesus fulfills the promise and the hope of God. And for those who trust in Him for salvation, you receive Freedom from sin and everlasting life. You're still going to struggle daily, but He not only saves you from sin, but He surrounds you with people who have been saved from sin so that you can help one another as you pursue Him together. But for those who do not trust in Jesus, who reject God, who rebel against God. And don't think that you're fooling God. Right? One of the greatest tragedies is that you can think, I've got enough here and I'm okay. Let me check off this box this time. Maybe you're missing the point of Zephaniah. It's God and God alone. He's not just some convenient deity that we add into our life when necessary or when convenient. He is our life. And if He is not all of our life, then we are living in rebellion against Him. And He makes another promise. Again, chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out them. Upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. We've all been angry. And we've all seen people angry. But none of us know the anger of the Lord. 
And unless we turn from ourselves and sin and we turn to Christ, we'll know that anger. God says he will not be mocked. He is omniscient, which means he knows all things, including the depths of our hearts. He knows our thoughts even before we have them. Do not think that you will make a fool of him. So I want to ask you this question. Do you trust him? Do you trust the one who knows all things? Do you trust the one who has crafted all of the universe to work exactly the way it needs to? Do you trust the one who has put life into motion? Who has formed the world and everything in it? Who upholds all things by the word of his power? Who in him we live and move and have our being? Who makes our brain to function, our hearts to beat, our lungs to pump in air and out? Who makes the blood flow through our body, who makes the trees the perfect shade of green? who causes the sun to stay just the right amount away so that we can exist. And yet we think that we have some kind of control over things in life. This is the God that we believe in, that we love and we trust. He's not just some card that we keep in our pocket that we pull out when needed and this God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite grace and in his infinite mercy has sent his son to be the propitiation the atoning sacrifice for our sins to provide a satisfying salvation have you found Jesus to be a satisfying Savior? Is He your only hope in life and in death? Let's pray. Our Father, may we seek you while you will be found. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.